uh, I'd say they're definitely overlapping. Um, but what uh, self-government or self-rule is a way of speaking about your ability to control your own desires and actions. Somebody who lacks a capacity for self-government will be led by impulses, and those impulses will be created by other people and immediate circumstances. So you walk up, you know, you bump into a guy at the bar, okay, and he's had, like, too many beers. And he's like, oh, man, I'm sorry. And he's like, smack, punches you. I don't know whether this ever happened to you. Never happened to me, right? Never happened to me. But it happens, doesn't it? Now, why does that happen? Well, it's because that guy just lacks the capacity to control his desires. So what that means is he is entirely subject to the circumstances in which he finds himself. Road rage. Um, in London, if you're sitting at the traffic lights and they go green and you're not moving within half a second, the guy behind you will be like, ah, ah, ah. It's like, why? Lack of proper self-government. Immediate response to an external impulse. No capacity for uh, thoughtful reflection before action. It's, it's what leads to uh, anger. It's what what leads people to um, problems in, with uh, adultery and pornography and sexual sin. It, it, it causes problems everywhere. Um, now, I, I alluded to, and you, know, you guys know this far better than me, I alluded to the place of that idea in the history of the American founding. And there was a real... Do any of you get David French's newsletter? I know David French has been coming for some criticism recently. But his news... I get his newsletter anyway. And I think it was last weekend. It was a really interesting couple of quotations. And I forget who they're from. But it's worth going back. If I can remember, I'll look, at it, look it up and I'll bring it back with me tomorrow. But it's basically highlighting the, the what's, if I recall. I might, I might be misremembering what he'd written. But in the American founding, there was a, a conviction that we can have limited control from civil government provided we're able to control ourselves. Well, who is it who said it was something like, Mr. Aldridge, you'll be able to help me, the, you, you can, there's no system of government that, that is sufficient to control irreligious men or something. How does that work? quote? John Adams. Right, so, so if you have a, a community of godly men, you don't need 50 gazillion laws, and you can allow them to carry firearms, and you can allow them to, to drink alcohol, and you can allow them to do things, because they'll do so in a way where they're not getting out of control. But as soon as you have people who can't control their own behavior, you need to have laws to stop them doing stupid things. And so that's a, it's a concept that finds its place in politics, but before it finds its place there, it finds its place in the basic constitution of a man in relation to God. But what we're called to do is to control our own reactions to the world around us and to other people um, so that we're able to make decisions wisely and um, thoughtfully rather than just shooting from the hip the whole time. Is that, is that helping? And I guess that's, integrity is, um, it's kind of truthfulness lived out, isn't it? A man has integrity if he keeps his word. Um, and, and telling the truth and acting in accordance with what you've said 
that's kind of integrity. Um, and we sort of distinguish integrity from truthfulness, don't we, in relation to whether it's backward-looking or forward-looking. So truthfulness is, um, did you fix the oil? Did you change the oil filter on my car like you said you would? Yes, I did. Right? Integrity is, when I give you the $50 in advance, you're going to go and change the oil filter on the car. How many of you actually checked that the mechanic has changed the oil filter on your car? Maybe you change it yourself. Smart move. But integrity is what you need from another person if you're going to trust them to do things for you. Yeah. Um, so all these virtues are, are connected with each other. Um, let me jump on through this. and I want to try and get through this as quick as I can, at least some time for questions. So just, just, to, just to encapsulate as briefly as I can where we've come so far, I've suggested that... Um, There's a problem arising in all of our lives to different degrees because we lack what Scripture describes as maturity in Christ, mature, godly, faithful Christian manhood. And that arises from a failure of the normal processes of childhood so that you reach uh, 18, 19, 20, whatever age, and you've not actually grown up in certain areas. And so things which previously would have been excusable in a seven-year-old now become malevolent and inexcusable and sinful and immature because you're 20, you should have been able to control yourself. You should, be, should have fixed this thing by now. Now that generates the proposition, the hypothesis that um, maybe we can seek to address some of these aspects of our own immaturity as Christian men by seeking to recapitulate what childhood should have done for us. So, what should childhood do? Structures that create habits, and those habits then create character. So, we pick up um, third paragraph on the second side, and this is roughly where we've got to. So within this framework, we can now re-articulate the problem of immaturity that we described earlier. It is, in effect, a failure to grow up fully through the divinely ordained process of childhood. Various aspects of our lives are still stuck in the past, so that though we may be chronologically adults, significant traces of childishness remain. All of us have this problem to some degree. An adult is immature to the degree that he lacks the capacity for Christ-like self-government. Back to Genesis 1. An adult ought to be able to rule himself and therefore take dominion over the world and love his wife and raise godly children and fill the world. And we fail, don't we? In different ways at different times. Because we're not as mature as we should be. This being the case... We can now articulate a fresh approach to addressing the problems of immaturity with which we began. If the problems arise from a failure to grow up, perhaps they can be tackled by replicating in adulthood some aspects of the processes that should operate during childhood in order to catch up in those areas where we have fallen behind. We are obviously not talking about a simple return to childhood. As adults, we have numerous responsibilities that cannot be relinquished, managing our families, earning money, planning our lives, and so on. 
Moreover, we can't look to our parents to provide whatever structures we may need to facilitate our growth. Remember I talked at five minutes or so in the middle of the second session about what childhood is? Like where your, your mum and your dad provide you with all this stuff. You don't even have to think about where your food is coming from. You roll out of bed at half past ten on a Saturday morning and miraculously there is food in the refrigerator. That you don't earn any money at all or nothing to speak of for years. And the mortgage gets paid and the electricity stays on and there's water when you turn the faucet and, and there's gas in the tank of the car when you jump in to drive. You, know, you don't do anything. Your parents contribute all that for you. Now, if we're thinking that this childhood process might be a paradigm for us as adults, we're going to have to still fulfill those adult responsibilities. Like nobody is going to say, I'll tell you what, Pastor Jeffrey, you need to grow up in certain areas of your life. Let me pay your mortgage for six months so you can concentrate on growing in godliness. It's like, well, if you're willing to do that, that'd be very helpful. <laughs> let me, let me, um, let me uh, organize all the aspects of your family finances. Let me provide everything for you. Let me maintain your house. Let me do your job so you can just go and work on your godliness. No, you can't. That's not, that's not possible. You're going to need to continue to do those adult things even while you start to try and instantiate some of the structures that you've basically missed out on as a young person that have left you immature in the ways that you now are. We're recognizing, next paragraph, this is what we've got to do, and seek to benefit from the central insight that character flows from the cultivation of habits which are in turn created by the imposition of structures for life that may be removed once the desired character is firmly in place. This is central to the God-given pattern for childhood. It's how the spirit works to bring us to mature manhood, and it may help us greatly as we seek, as adults, to grow towards greater maturity in Christ. Let me make a comment about this um, from a slightly different perspective. Have you heard of um, uh, James Clear, write a book called Atomic Habits? Heard of him? Yeah, one or two hands gone up now. What's really interesting to me, the last few decades, a couple of decades in particular, um, which have been marked by a very dramatically increasing pathologies and incapacities in family life and workplace across the West, have also been marked by loads and loads and loads of books, self-help books, self-help books telling you how to solve the problem. And it turns out that some of them are not all that wrong. Um, I liken the self-help industry to a, a room full of 10,000 blind monkeys throwing darts around. And there's a dartboard on one of the walls. If you have 10,000 blind monkeys throwing darts around, one of them might hit the bullseye just by accident. And it seems to me intriguing that I've read a whole bunch of some of these books and they have mixed in with a whole bunch of ludicrous nonsense. They have some really, really striking and remarkable insights in them. James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, has sold millions of copies. I'm not now encouraging you to follow James Clear's recipe for um, growing in productivity, dealing with bad habits, becoming more effective at work, and so on. What I'm wanting to call your attention, call to your, call to your attention is that there's something about what he's highlighting that habits, he wasn't atomic because they're very small, little habits, repeated, will actually 
equip you to reshape your life. Now, how has he discovered this? Actually, he discovered it by accident as a consequence of a terrible, terrible accident that he had and had to kind of rebuild his life in a sense. Um, how many people have those kinds of crippling accidents and don't recover? Well, the other 9,999 blind monkeys in the room throwing darts around randomly. James Clear, it just happens, stumbled upon, I think, the way that God's world works. If you're thinking in theological terms, this is an aspect of God's common grace. Um, You're familiar with um, the work of Cornelius Van Til, whether or not you realize it, you're familiar with the work of Cornelius Van Til, because your pastor is Pastor Randy Booth. And, um, uh, one of Van Til's central insights, this is not to put it in his words, is that um, unbelievers still live in God's world, even though they don't acknowledge it. And one of the effects of that is that um, God's ways work and other ways fail. And sometimes people stumble by accident onto insights or ways of life or patterns of behavior which turn out to have some resemblance with wise and godly patterns of behavior, even though they don't acknowledge the scriptural sources of those patterns of behavior. I think we can find in scripture, especially, for example, in the book of Proverbs, we can find plenty of resources which, if properly articulated and understood and uh, thought about and applied, would lead us to the kinds of conclusions that James Clear, for example, has articulated. He hasn't quoted the book of Proverbs. It's what Van Til called borrowed capital, borrowed intellectual capital, unacknowledged, because he doesn't know that it is actually scriptural and biblical before it is practical. But it's nonetheless got some useful insights in it. Um, Some people prefer to speak in terms of natural law. I'm less enthusiastic about that phrase because that seems to suggest that there is something written into the fabric of creation that we can read out from the fabric of creation. And the problem with that is, well, that's true, but it's our perception of it is uh, affected negatively by our sin and blindness. So Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, but Romans 1, um, though they knew God, they didn't acknowledge him as God or give thanks to him, but their foolish hearts were darkened And so when we look around at the world, if you've just got a bunch of unbelievers looking around at the world, I'm not so keen on describing their process of reflection as appropriating natural law because what they're actually appropriating is a terrible mishmash of things that they're reading rightly and things that they're reading wrongly. And it's it's not possible methodologically to distinguish between what they've got right and what they've got wrong. What we need to do is to view things through a scriptural lens in order to assess them but in doing that, we don't want to dismiss the possibility that some of these things, some of these guys might have got things right. And maybe we can get on to some of... Um, well, to be honest, if, if you're a manager in a company, you don't just read books written by Christians about management, correct? You might read stuff that's written by other people who just know how human beings work. And it's helpful for that reason. It's this doctrine of uh, common grace and Van Til's a picture of how uh, God's work in creation relates to everyone's apprehension of it that, that lies behind this. Okay. To be more specific, I think we can identify the following five things that we need to do. Now, what, what we're trying to do here, these five numbered bullet points, 
This is how, it seems to me, we could re-implement what we all as parents ought to have done for our kids, but failed at, in our own lives as adults. Number one, accurate self-diagnosis. We don't have the luxury of relying on parents to diagnose our shortcomings. We must do the job ourselves. We may be helped by sermons, teaching, books, study, the encouragement and rebuke of friends and so on, but in the end we must take personal responsibility for clearly identifying those aspects of our life and character that we wish by God's grace to change. When you were seven years old, your mum would tell you, your room is a mess, tidy your room. When you were 14, your dad would tell you, you've not done your calculus homework, now you're not going out to play baseball. This is a problem. You need to fix this. When you have those conversations with your dad, he might call attention to ways in which you're not speaking in an appropriately respectful way, or the way you conduct yourself at church, or the way you speak to your contemporaries, or the way you speak to him, that's not appropriate. He'll call attention to your immaturities. Your dad is not going to do that anymore, except for those of you who are still that young. So gentlemen, like I look at myself, like who's going to diagnose my flaws? Well, sometimes other people do. We do have that responsibility to help each other. But principally, we must take responsibility for our own self-diagnosis. Mummy and Daddy aren't going to do it for us anymore. Second, clear goals. This is another thing that parents do for us. They know where we are. They know where they, we'd like to get. They'd like us to get to. Well, again, we have to do this ourselves. Having defined the problem, we must define the solution. What would Christ-like maturity look like in this particular area of life? Again, there are many resources that may be helpful in this task, but ultimately the responsibility is ours. So you might have, let me speak as a pastor again for a second. You, you, pastors have conversations with people um, who they may be troubled by um, a sense of my relationship with my wife feels tense, feels like it's not, we, you know, we start talking and before long we're arguing. Okay, well, well done, you mean you've identified the problem. Well, now, how would you like it to look? How ought it to be? Now, you're no longer in a position where mum and dad are going to tell you how to do that you're going to have to think. And well done for noticing there's a problem. But now stage two is you've got to define what the solution is going to look like. Then number three, well-defined structures. I think this is the hardest part. Having defined the trajectory along which we wish to grow, because you know where you are, step one, you know where you want to get to, that defines for you the trajectory. Now we've got the hardest job of all to put in place structures designed to inculcate new habits which will over time and by God's grace, forge in us the desired character. So think of the example of a child again. Um, You have a four-year-old who can't yet read. That's not too much of a problem, but when when they're sort of 10, 12, 14, you want them to be able to read. So what do you do? Well, it's very simple. You pick them up and you pop them in a library, and you drop them on the floor, and you leave them there for 10 years, don't you? Obviously you don't. I mean, no, that's a really irresponsible thing to do. Almost nobody learns to read like that. How do you learn to read? Well, you go to a school or your mum or your dad gets a book about reading and you start with you know, individual letters and then you start with, and then you move on to 
pairs of letters and phonemes and then simple one-syllable words and then two-syllable words and then all the funny things like O-U-G-H, which can be off, off, oo, ow, or, ought, you know. And, and, and what, you, what, you, what, you, what that book does is it provides a structure. It, it, it defines the pathway along which you go from where you are, can't read, to where you want to be, can read. And then you can go into the library and enjoy this wonderful world of literature that's before you. That's a, um, a, a young person who can read is at that stage of maturity where they're able to go and do that. Now, that's what parents do, isn't it? In every area of our child's lives. That's what all these um, kind of house rules, even if they're implicit house rules, are all about. They're about getting the child from where they are to where you want them to be. Now, you've got to do it for yourself. Um, I had a conversation the other day with a guy who, uh, one of the things that we talked about briefly was like how, many th- how much of your time do you spend on your smartphone? We'll talk about this tomorrow. Um, I mean, it was terrifying, wasn't it, at Gloria Sancta, how much time young people spend on social media. But, okay, that's a separate question. We'll come to that again tomorrow. But guys who are like, enslaved to your inbox, um, where you are now is... Every two minutes, every evening, just checking, because it's beep, and there's another notification. Where you want to be is what precisely? I don't know. But maybe you want to check once when you get home. Or maybe you don't need to check at all when you get home. Okay, that's where you want to be. Um, So what are the structures that you're going to put in place to get you from where you are to where you want to be? Are you just going to try harder? You've been trying harder for ten years, haven't you? Haven't you been trying harder? to stop letting my smartphone dominate my life every evening. Nice autobiographical note, really. For years. But that's not good enough, because it doesn't help, does it? Or, no, it does help for a short period of time, but then, you know, you get a stressful period at work and you're back to every two minutes. Beep, I'm just going to check again. So what are the structures that will get me from here to there? Number four, tracking progress. A loving parent watches over their children's development attentively monitoring their habits and prayerfully awaiting the emergence of the desired character. Again, mum and dad aren't around, watching over us. We've got to do this for ourselves. Our parents, it's wonderful actually, when you see your child learning to read. You go through the book, chapter by chapter, from a, b, k, d, e, all the way through to through cat, dog, cow, to enough anti-disestablishmentarianism, controversy, sorry, controversy, sorry, controversy. Um, And if you get to the end of the book and the child still can't get beyond cat, dog, cow, you think, oh, okay, hold on a second. We've got to go back and redo a bit, or maybe there's some problem with the child's development, maybe the child's dyslexic, maybe there's something else, and you analyze and you kind of scrutinize and you monitor the progress because you love the child. Dad and mum aren't around to monitor your progress. So you're going to have to do it for yourself. And then finally, number five, absolute commitment to the task. A child who lacks willpower may still grow in maturity if he has diligent parents. Kick him up the backside occasionally. But an adult must provide the necessary structures for growth himself. Anything less than 100% commitment is all but certain to end in failure because it turns out that uh, it is really difficult to change. It, 
you guys, you young people, I bet there is not, there's not a man over the age of 30 in this room who would not cheerfully go back to being 15 again. I, I would love to be 15 again and not make 95% of the mistakes that I made. Because it's so much harder to correct your life when you're 47. Now, when you're 15, 16, 17, praise God, please fix some of these things now. It's so much easier for you. But guys, those of us who are somewhat older, you are going to need to be resolutely committed to this task. One of the tests I actually apply when I'm meeting with people uh, in a pastoral context to start trying to deal with, let's say, issues in marriage or issues of um, personal godliness or whatever, what I've started to do quite recently is to ask them to write down, okay, where are you in relation to this area? Where would you like to be? And one of the reasons I do that is because they've got to do that. Because if they, if they don't do that, then I can't help them. But there's another reason I can't help them. If they won't even do that, they lack the basic commitment necessary to do anything else. If a man won't spend five minutes, write an email that says, right now where I am is, every night I'm watching porn on my phone before I go to bed. Where I want to be is, I want to be rid of this, but I still need to use my smartphone for work. Okay. That's a well-defined problem and a well-defined game. If somebody's not going to do that, then they definitely lack the self-control and self-discipline, the self-government necessary to resist a temptation like that. There's not a snowball's chance in hell of them actually changing. So I need to, really what I'll be doing is praying for them to reply to the email so we can get started. But I'm not, I'm not going to try and cajole them into dealing with their porn problem if they won't even write me a five-line email. Absolute, resolute, Commitment to the task will be needed to parent ourselves out of the mess we've gotten ourselves into. Finally, oh, and just a note on the right-hand side, um, Jamie Smith's three-volume series, Desiring the Kingdom, Something Else the Kingdom, Something Else the Kingdom. There's a a three-volume series which really digs deeply into the relationship. Roy, you're nodding. What are the other two titles? Imagining the Kingdom... Yeah, Cultural Liturgies Project. Yeah, he's, he's, he's digging deeply into the relationship between our desires and our actions, liturgies, he calls them, why habits is another word for that, and our character. And one of the things I'm hoping to do later this year is to try and, for my benefit, as well as those people who I've passed, to try and think more through that. And if some of you guys have read that, I'd love to have a whiskey with you tonight and hear what you think. Um, I've read some of it, and I'm still kind of chewing it over. But that's a little note for me to really try and, get into that series. Finally, one brief thing. This helps us to understand the proper place of counselling in the development of Christian maturity and actually our relationships. Counselling with a small c. Um, Mr. Ketchin and I, we were talking about this just up in the break, about the value of just kind of openness and transparency and honesty in relationships. If I come to you and say, listen, brother, can you pray for me because I'm really struggling with... You know, I'm feeling just really anxious about the future and, uh, you know, and, and you, I need to be honest and open with you and then... Um, you can then rebuke me or challenge me or encourage me. We've got that kind of informal, small-c counselling relationship. All of us have that kind of responsibility for each other. Counselling is frequently thought of as the solution to problems of immaturity in the Christian life. In fact, it is no such thing. Just going to somebody 
for counsel, whether formally, Pastor Booth, or a certified counselor, or informally, sit down with Mr. Kitchen and have a chat, is not the solution. Except very rarely. True, there are situations in which counseling by itself can provide what a believer needs. Just advice about a difficult decision, or prayer and encouragement in a time of trial, or an answer to a troubling theological question. But systemic problems of Christian immaturity cannot be solved merely by talking about them. Why is that? Well, how is character forged? Christ-like character is forged in the furnace of life, and life has to be lived. There's a great line in Peter Lightheart's Against Christianity. I think it's Against Christianity. Yeah, it is. Where he says, um, and I'm going to butcher the quotation, but it's something along the lines of, we have been misled into imagining that it's possible to think our way through life. And I forget which chapter it's in. And I think, that's a really insightful thought. Just talking about the problem isn't sufficient. When the problem is an abiding issue of character. Because character isn't shaped just by talking. It's shaped in other ways. Counseling has a valuable place in helping a committed Christian formulate active, accurate self-diagnoses and clear goals, establish effective structures to promote growth, track progress honestly, and encourage ongoing commitment. All those one to five things. But without this ongoing commitment to growth, counseling is likely to be futile. By contrast, when life is lived in humble dependence on God's grace with self-conscious commitment to Christ-likeness and attention to the patterns of life, that God has designed for our good, then we will experience growth towards maturity in Christ. My favorite illustration of counseling is the gym coach. So imagine that you're like me and you're basically skinny and you, you wish that like you could lift suitcases and stuff, right? Or maybe you, you, know, you, you just had, um, you know, you've had one too many Christmas dinners and one, uh, one too many failed set of New Year's resolutions, and you need to lose 30 pounds, okay? Otherwise, your knees are going to give up on you. So you go to the gym, and you start paying $30 a month for gym membership, and you, you hire this uh, gym coach, and the coach says, okay, well, look, here's a bunch of exercises. You've got to do these exercises. You've got to here's, you run on Mondays, and Tuesdays you're doing deadlifts, and Wednesdays you're doing, you know, and I don't know what it would look like, but you've got this re- regime, and he's like, and you're like, oh, that's so encouraging. I'm definitely, I'm really excited about this. And you go away, and you come out the next week, and he said, well, how'd you get on? He said, what? Oh, I, I really enjoyed it last time. Do you think we could do it again? It's like, well, how do you get on with the exercises? So I, I didn't know I needed to do any exercises. It's like, no, 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 you're not understanding me. Um, you won't get fit just from coming to talk to me. You will get fit if you every day do what I'm telling you to do. It is that process of living that life running five miles on Monday, deadlifts on Tuesday, upper body on Wednesday. That's, that's what will get you fit. What do you need the gym coach for? Like you need a counsellor. The coach. Help you to figure out what to do next. Help you to diagnose. I get this ache in my back when I've just done deadlifts. So that's normal. No, it's really bad. It's here. Okay, that's not normal. Your technique's wrong. And so you correct your technique and then you're fine, yeah? That's what you need the coach for. That's what you need the counsellor for. The counsellor will not make you fit. The counselor will not make you godly. He might help you to restructure your habits so that your character will be reforged over time. That's what the counselor can do. 
that brings us to the end of this handout. And hopefully it's given us a bit of time if you want to talk any questions, any comments. Um, please hit me. Take a moment to think about that if you'd like to. Um, Pastor Booth, perhaps initially, if you have any uh, comments to make that you think will be helpful, please, please do just jump straight in. Um, we've got a question from Mr. Landrum. Yeah. You mentioned uh, about uh, self-assessment. Yes. Of course, yeah. Um, so on the question of self-assessment, um, let me make sure I'm getting this right, um, how would you encourage somebody to assess themselves accurately, uh, especially given that they might have blind spots? Um, I think this is one thing that we can do intellectually. Um, the Puritans were really good on self-scrutiny. Uh, Their preaching was very detailed and practical. And there is such a thing as um, listening to teaching, uh, reading the scriptures, reading other books of uh, devotional books and books about the Christian life with an attitude of self-scrutiny. So a classic example would be at All Saints, before we have the confession of sins, we have a short two or three minute meditation or or a word or two about a particular aspect of Christian godliness. Now that's a wonderful opportunity for you to, as you're sitting and thinking, listening to Pastor Neil or me or whoever it is, to think, okay, is this something that the Spirit of God is pointing to something in me about? Let's recover recover what's good about the charismatic movement, shall we? What is God saying to me? in this scriptural text? What is God saying to me in this sermon? What is God saying to me in this book that we're talking about and so on? So there is that sense of personal, active, conscious self-criticism, self-scrutiny. And then, I mean, Nathan, um, Mr. Ketchin, your your comment is really helpful more broadly. Um, We have a responsibility to each other. which involves both being ready to confront one another, like, let's say, Paul did to Peter, and also to receive such confrontation. Men, you're you're, you're grown-ups. If somebody comes to you and says, listen, brother, we went out for a couple of beers last night, but you didn't go out for a couple of beers. You went out for seven. What's going on? They're not telling you off. They're trying to help you. They love you. So how are you going to receive that? Are you going to receive it in the right spirit, which is, okay, this is my, this is my brother in Christ who's gently or not so gently saying, come on, this has got to stop. We need to get this under control. Or are you going to be making excuses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So both in how we scrutinize ourselves and how we give and receive criticism from others, I think there's a lot in that. Um, our wives um, are potentially a huge asset, aren't they? Do, do you ask your wives about um, what you, what they think you could do to be a better husband? You have to ask. 
We had it. It was fascinating. We just started, Nicole, my wife and I have, have just started a series of parenting discussions at, at All Saints. And one of the, the exercises that we gave people to do after the first, always give people homework at parenting discussions, okay? Was the, each, each part, each member of the couple to ask the other, okay, no, sorry, what was it? Yeah, no, it was husbands first and then the wives. Um, is there anything that I, you, that you think I could do to be, to, to, to um, uh, cultivate a, a more Christ-like home. And it, it was actually, the emphasis was on the husbands. And then we said for the wives to do the same thing. Uh, but the emphasis was on the husbands asking their wives that. Now, I do want to stress, anything that you think, and your wives are not infallible, but they will help me, aren't they? And so, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if marriages developed the kind of trust and uh, godly mutual scrutiny where we're really trying to help one another? Because your wife isn't perfect. And if she said to you, hey, um, darling, what? You, know, you, you ask me this every few months. Well, let me ask you, is there anything you think, now's not the time to put the boot in. But it might be the time to say, well, you know what, babe? There's one thing that... Um, now, when you're in the car and you leave the car seat so far forward that I can't even get in. <laughs> My wife's five foot three. Anyway. No. So, you know, th- those kinds of things, I think. So to summarize, self-scrutiny, mutual openness and expectation, especially with those closest to us. I, I was talking with a man about him being an employer just this last week, and he said it's amazing how infrequently junior staff ask him what they could do better. Wow. That's a rebuke, isn't it? And you don't want it to be craven, like, how can I be better? How can I? But occasionally you ask your boss for an appraisal. Tell me how I'm getting on. And, um, and he's not criticizing you. He's trying to help. Yeah, Mr. Ketchum. Yeah. Mm. Oh man. Uh. So just again, just to repeat it for the sake of my clarity and for the recording, um, uh, David, you see in his sons many of his failings. Um, how do you counsel David? Um, and of course, David is compromised, as you said. His his ability to rebuke his sons is limited by the fact that they can see his own shortcomings. Uh, you, you think, how many wives does Solomon have? 700 and then 300 concubines. Well, where did you get that idea? Um Gideon, um, be king over us. It's like, no, no, I won't do that. But Abimelech, which means my father is the king, a name he received from his father, put 70 of his brothers to death to, to seize the throne. And it is remarkable how sons in those terrible circumstances sometimes amplify the errors of their fathers. Now, I want to push the other way as well and say, you know, by God's grace, um, 
where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Sometimes and many times our sons outshine us in godliness. I said to my son a few months ago, you know, we had just had a kind of coming together of ideas, you know, like fathers and sons have. I did say, I've got to put this in perspective, Ben. You are light years ahead of where I was at your age. This is still not acceptable, but let me give you, I want to encourage you. Like, you're doing great. And um, so, okay, how would I counsel David? That was your, I don't know, I don't know if there's anything you can do to fix it, is there? I mean, it's, it just raises the stakes. Maybe this is, the real function of your question in this context is to, is to point out what is at stake for us. Like, I mean, I've mentioned pornography a couple of times. Like, your porn problem is not just your porn problem. Like, it's your wife's as well, even if she doesn't know about it. You think that's not shaping you? Come on. Um, uh, Pastor Booth will tell you, you know, his greater pastoral experience than mine. And I hope he won't tell you, but he could tell you stories that make your hair curl um, about the ruinous effects of those kinds of sins. And people think they're private. And, and so many other things go the same way. Our, our lives really matter. Um, Adam's failure to protect his wife from the temptation that she was subject to in Genesis 3. What a more graphic example could you imagine than, than that, of a, just the, the failure of a man to, to do what was required of him? So I don't think there's an easy answer. And I said, Pastor Booth, what am I missing? What would you say to David? So maybe that does hint at a, at a practical thing you can do. So do you apologize to your children when you've sinned against them? I hope you do. And, and young men, you need to understand that your father has a right to rebuke you about things in relation to which he has sinned, and especially so if he's confessed his sin to you. So if, if I've got angry with my children unjustifiably, um, well, I need to apologize to them. 
And I still have this responsibility that you're talking about, Pastor Booth, of, of uh, challenging them about their own temper if that should become necessary. And, and actually being honest and apologizing um, both uh, highlights for me and prepares the way for a more effective ministry of exhortation to my sons. Yeah. So all of this, in a sense, it comes under the heading of this, this diagnosis issue, doesn't it? Um, and perhaps also it's, um, it's in, in encouraging the humility to say, okay, I've got, this, I've got, a, I've got a problem. And where would I like to be? I'd like to be here. And, I, and, and, and you don't ever want to accept immaturity. I, a young man, I know a Christian man, was, he didn't say this to me, he said it to a... Um, in my hearing, but he, he said it in my hearing to another man. He said, uh, maybe I'll just never be a husband. And he was more in relation to his immaturity as, than anything else. Now, five years later, he's married with two kids. But he was no way ready to be a husband when he said that comment. He was right that he was... And, <laughs> and my friend didn't quite slap him around the face, but said, well, you know, he actually gave him some real practical encouragement. And this young man has grown up wonderfully, wonderfully. So I think, yeah, there's the, the, we don't want to give up on those desperate situations either. I'm meandering now a little. So let me just stop. Do you want to add anything, Pastor Booth? I'm sorry. Do you want to add something to this? Or should we? No. Yeah. So other questions or comments, anything? Uh, yeah, brother. returns. How does that? So I, the law of diminishing returns is, seems to be a, a, an observation about what happens, which leaves unanswered the question of why it happens. So maybe it happens because people give up. Maybe it doesn't need to happen. Can you think of examples in scripture of grown men who were radically transformed by the gospel? We all can, can't we? Do you, you may even know people yourself who were. Uh, maybe you have been. So I, I, I don't think we should accept the law of diminishing returns as a biblical principle. I think we should probably observe it. This is what I mean about the problem of natural law. How, how, if, if we're committed to a natural law framework, then the law of diminishing returns looks inescapable, and maybe we think, oh, that's just how God's made the world. Or no, it might be how the sinful world functions. 
So what are we going to do to mitigate the, the thing that we see so often where people start trying hard and, and they make some progress in some area and then the progress diminishes? What are we going to do about that? Acceptance is not acceptable. That's not what we're going to do. So I want to push back against the so-called law of diminishing returns and find other ways. So maybe what do I need to do? Maybe I need to have more meaningful accountability in relation to certain action. Maybe um, there's... Right, yes. Um, second, second paragraph on page two, penultimate sentence. Um, Over time, this character takes root and the externally imposed structures can be relaxed as the children learn to govern their own character. Is that what you're thinking? Right. Right, right. Right, right. Right, exactly. Um, or maybe what will happen is doing 100 push-ups a day for 30 days or whatever your fitness regime is has created in you a kind of character of a man who just... I, I like exercise now. You know what I'm saying? So now I don't need the rule of 100 push-ups a day because... I kind of feel twitchy if I haven't gone to the gym. <laughs> so I'll just go to the gym because I've become the kind of person who likes to work out you know, three or four times a week. I don't need a rule Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday because I've just, it's part of my life now. So I'll give you an example. Piano playing, okay? When my, and this is actually a really lovely example. I've talked about my son. When, when he was young, we had a rule, 20 minutes a day. He played the piano or 30 minutes a day, whatever it was, and it, it got longer as he got older. And he's a good piano player. I taught him because I used to play the piano when I was very young and, um, he's much better than I am now. And now he'll just go and sit down at the piano and play. I don't give him lessons anymore. Occasionally, and it's become very infrequent, I'll, be, I'll hear him. He's got a new book of, you know, I don't know what it's, Chopin or Mozart or Scott Joplin. He was playing Scott Joplin when we first moved here. The only piano book he had was Scott Joplin. Oh, man. It's driving us absolutely nuts. So... So I actually bought him Beethoven piano sonatas because I can't cope with this wretched Scott Joplin. So, but now he doesn't need me to tell him, practice half an hour a day. Because he probably practices a couple of hours a week. He just goes over and plays because he loves to play the piano. Now this is where the Jamie Smith stuff comes in. What happens is structure produces the habits, which produces the character. Now how is, Jamie Smith is going to pass that as we love certain things. I love to play the piano. So now I'm just going to play the piano multiple times a week. I'll just sit down and this is going to be part of my life. And he's a great musician. He's a really good piano player. Um, and you think you apply that to every other area of your life. Um, when you were little, little, your mum and dad kicked you out of bed in the morning. Um, teenager, you've got your own alarm clock. Adult, you just can't abide the sluggishness of lying in bed until 9.30 in the morning. Because part of your character is the day's begun. I've been at it. It's Saturday. whole day ahead of me. All this stuff, stuff I want to do. Yeah? So 
the character, what you love to do, is in line with the habits that were, were cultivated. Sexual purity. Right? You've been disciplined. And now you just love your wife and you just don't have eyes for anybody else. Because like, you, right? you just love her. Yeah? In every worship, when you were young, there were days on Sundays when I was young and we didn't have a huge amount of money. Uh, my mum was a single parent. My father had died when I was very young. And my brother and I had to go to church. We only had one pair of tra- trousers, like, like slacks, and they were really prickly. <laughs> it sounds really stupid. Really uncomfortable to wear. I hated church because I had to wear those uncomfortable trousers. But I take them to church. Take to church. My mum remarried, went to a different church, and got some nice, more comfortable trousers. And the habit continued. Habit continued. Habit continued. And the habit created in me, and I don't think I understood the gospel in any meaningful way at all until my late teens, early, like 17 or 18. But that habit created in me the nascent character of a young, confused Christian who started to love worshipping God. Can you see? The habit created the character. And so by the time, when in my early 20s, when I went to Japan... Um, for three and a half months. Um, I traveled nearly two hours across Tokyo every Sunday to go to church. I would never have done that when I was 15. And what had happened is the same thing, I take it, has happened to you guys. You've come to love worship, but you didn't always necessarily. There were times, wasn't it, when it was like you came because your dad kicked you out of bed on a Sunday morning. And that's normal, not desirable, but normal. But the habit forges the thing that you love to do. And in all those different areas, I think that, and that I think where is, I'm anticipating as I'm reading more of Jamie Smith's stuff, that the, the way that love for a particular way of life is informed by rituals or habits, he's, he's really luminously clear on that. Oh, that's Peter Lightheart in Against Christianity. Yeah, that's Peter. But Jamie Smith's book, Desiring the Kingdom, is really good. Um, uh, Pastor Booth, it's 25 to 9. I don't know what time these guys have to get up in the morning. We have to be here at 8 a.m., right? So, um, that's interesting. Yeah, you don't love what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I should just say um, again, um, thank you. I don't even think I said thank you for the invitation, which is remiss of me. Thank you, Pastor Booth, for the invitation. Thank you, you guys, for your remarkable attentiveness for two and a bit hours on a Friday night where you must have had a, you know, a long week at work, many of you. And um, I've been encouraged and helped just by thinking through these things with you again. I hope and trust that tomorrow morning will be encouraging as well. Uh, I'm preaching on Sunday. What a privilege. Thank you for that as well. And I'm looking forward to seeing you all spending a bit more time uh, together in the next couple of days. So, yeah, thank you.
Awesome. Yes, sir. Shall I lead us in prayer briefly as we finish? Merciful Father, we are conscious, particularly as we address a topic like this, of how far short we fall of Christ-likeness. Perhaps we've been ashamed this evening, rebuked this evening. Perhaps we've been frustrated with ourselves at missed opportunities that have been recalled in our minds. And yet as we go from here, we pray we would go with the thought fresh in our minds of our spirit-wrought union with Jesus. That whatever our failings, whatever our weaknesses, whatever our inadequacies and sins and immaturities, you love us. You loved us when we were far off. Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. And clothed in him, we are mature in him. And so now we're wrestling with the the terrible tension between the reality of the lives that we see ourselves living and the greater reality of the life that we have in Christ. And we want to move from the former to the latter in our experience. May every day, Father, may every moment be a self-conscious step towards Christ, towards maturity in him, towards an enjoyment of and an embrace of all the good things which he has set out for us to do. And we pray that uh, tomorrow as we think through some of the practicalities of what this may look like, what maturity in Christ is and what sort of challenges our world poses for us as we strive for it, please help us to identify specific ways in which we may grow and work in as that change which in our better moments we desire above all else. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.